Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Bill. So next up, Tom Dykoff, historian, writer, broadcaster and educator about architecture, cities, places and design and everything in between. He talks about the rise and fall of the late capitalist city, the rub of super gentrification versus creative anarchism as an engine for innovation and building communities where we can all find our ledge. Very meaty indeed. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. So hello Tom, thank you very much for joining me for our little podcast. Oh, pleasure, it's lovely. lovely. Nothing I'd rather do. Well, you know, you and I have been having this conversation for 15, 20 years. So in some ways, the idea that we, it's just a continuation of that. And I think one thing I remember you talking to me about... Um, oh, a long time ago, was the idea of the cathedral as the first... You talked about, we talked about sort of the idea of, of, of architecture being always on, being great, a great thing for storytelling. And then I remember then, of course, you wrote a book called The Age of Spectacle that was very much around, you know, sort of the big gestures of architecture as a sort of storytelling exemplars for the great branded city. And, of course, that was wonderful, but I wonder how you feel like about that now, given what's been going on the last 18 months and clearly this is a rubbish first question sorry too <laughs> yes, much no, there's a lot in there Adam. there's a lot in there i'm not <laughs> from very cathedrals good to the post-pandemic city that's a lot that's a lot to get into yeah um well i think you know i think generally at the moment it's sort of hard to um step back from oneself isn't it and, and look at where we are i feel you know culturally societally um we're in the middle of this sort of fast moving river um, where we're buffeted from one thing to another, I mean, not just a pandemic, and so much has been happening, so much has been happening over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, that it's sort of hard to step back and think, well, where are we? All I know is that, you know, we're obviously at a period now where we're going through a massive transition. You know, you and I are a similar age, and, you know, we, we grew up in the 70s and 80s, a period of which we can now look back on and think, well, well actually, it's I mean, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of chaos, but actually it was relatively settled by comparison with what we're going through now. Um, when I began writing the book, The Age of Spectacle, um, which I began writing, goodness me, 10 years ago, um, it was, you know, after the financial crash, and it was a, it was a moment where a lot of people were saying, the, there was, we're coming to the end of something, societally, um, and perhaps the beginning of something else. Um, but the financial crash was a moment when actually we can perhaps... Um, put a kind of a, a, a kind of bookmark towards the end of something. We didn't know what that something was and, uh, and what the new thing is. Um, and I think probably, you know, 10, 12, 13 years on from the, from the crash, I still think we don't know quite where we're going. We're still in the sense of, well, where next? What we do know, I think now, is, is looking back, we've come to the end of a certain chapter in society and you know, more focused on architecture and the city. Um, in urbanism, you know, something that emerged um, probably in the 1950s, 1960s, that have been, has been called many things, um, postmodernism being, you know, the, the big P word, um, neoliberal, the neoliberal city being an, another one that's uh, emerged over the last sort of uh, decade or so, a period where the city changed its kind of raison d'etre and its uh, politics and its economics um, and kind of shifted. Um, and I guess looking back now, the kind of the age of spectacle was a moment with, where 
I could sort of look back and say, okay, there was this city that I grew up in um, and it transformed and changed, um, became something else. Um, what is this strange thing? And I was very keen in the book to put together two things. One, a shift in architectural form, um, whatever you want to call that, you know, let's call them postmodernisms, um, and a shift in the nature of the city, of the Western city. Um, um, and probably the largest driver within that being gentrification, um, which I'd learnt about at university. I studied geography at university and we studied um, about gentrification in the early 1990s and it was a you know, big thing within geography. But I, th I sensed within, say, architecture, it hadn't really come to the fore until the financial crash. So um, the book was really charting these kind of two cogs driving each other forward, a shift in architecture, a shift in the city. Um, and now, I suppose, we're all sort of, I mean, the, we've had the pandemic, of course, and everyone's sort of writing about, you know, well, what's the future, you know, what's the future of the city going to be? Uh, but I think, I think there's a much bigger question here, which is what's the, you know, those kind of mega questions. What's the future of the planet going to be? What's the future of society? What's the future of uh, human society? What's the future of our relationship with nature? I mean, there's so much um, to which cities and architecture need to respond um, I think we're still in the midst of this kind of fast-flowing river, which is buffeting from one thing, buffeting from one thing to the next, which is both exhilarating, but slightly confusing, particularly when I look back to my childhood and think, oh, we kind of knew, good old Cold War, at least we knew where we were. Yeah, well, I mean, you and I <laughs> both spent some time in Aylesbury uh, when we were young, and I think, you know, when I look back, there were, there were concrete ducks, I remember, was a highlight of going round the shopping centre in Aylesbury, and, and that was one of the few... Uh, joyful respites within a sea of concrete and a wimpy that was on stilts, which was. Oh, a I real remember it. Fries, yeah, Fries Square. I loved. Yeah, I loved it. I, I loved it. I have a sense of. I had a sense of great, looking back, you know, comfort from that. And I think, you know, one of the very first TV programs ever made was about um, about brutalism and concrete and uh, and so on. Um, and looking back now. I kind of look back to my child in the 70s with a great deal of affection at what I suppose we would now call the post-war consensus, that kind of what the welfare state thing that we were all, that we were brought, lucky enough to be brought up in the kind of tail end of um, in this country, you know, um, you know, good state um, schools, you know, good healthcare uh, and so on and good old brutalism yeah. as well. Yeah. God love it. And, and, and uh, yes, and, and a certainty about what the high street was for, and, and a sort of, I suppose, also the, particularly with brutalism, a, 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 an understanding of, of, of the role of architecture within that. Mm. One thing I, w within your, your book, Age of Spectacle, one thing I really liked about, about it was, that, well, there was one story that was about Covent Garden and about, you know, rather the, the you know, the, the, the rise up of the, you know, the people who live there against the developers, against the local authority and speaking about, you know, what they wanted from that place. And then, you know, mm. almost the, the accidental element of it was it, it allowed for gentrification because actually it created a far more valuable asset than knocking it all down and building something else. Mm. But, but also there's a subtext in that, which is the, also the, the small moving parts and the fact that people want to protect those. And often, you know, I remember, you know, listening to Frank Duffy talking about this, which was based on that lovely 1970s building called How Buildings Learn that mm. was about, you know, there was the site there was the skin, there was the structure, there was the space, all things beginning with S, and my hands are getting smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> until you eventually get to the stuff 
that spins around the user. And fundamentally, it's those things most closely that we care about most, and then we move further out. And I saw within that, the way people talk about Covent Garden, it was often those smaller, fast-moving, lively pieces that people wanted to protect. And I wonder what you thought about that in terms of, I suppose, age of spectacle to age of experience. And obviously, I'm bound to say that. But would you see that? Do you see the transition like that? Well, there was that move, that move, what was interesting, you know, I talked just then about the comfort of the wealth, growing up in the world of the welfare state, um, which was fantastic. But of course, it was a, a world that was handed down to us by well-meaning elites, by well-meaning people from on top, the good old-fashioned planner or the architect who knew what was good for us, and very often did. Um, what happened, of course, from the late 50s into the 60s, first in America, then in, in continental Europe, and then in, in the UK, was... Uh, was, I suppose, people beginning to question that. Uh, Covent Garden being one of those um, one of those instances in the late 1960s when um, people were looking at what was planned for Covent Garden by the Greater London Council very, with very well-meaning intentions, you know, to give, uh, you know, to rethink the, the city to, uh, for the future, for the future at the time of the, the car and, and so on. And they said, no, we don't want that at all. Um, you know, alongside that, you, you have the rise of individualism um, and what we would now probably call, um, you know, kind of identity politics. Um, so people coming up and saying, actually, no, um, as a working class person living in uh, Covent Garden, I don't agree with this plan, actually. You, you think you speak for me, uh, GLC, but actually you don't. Um, then you might have the LGBTQ plus community, which wasn't called that then, of course, coming out in Congon saying, actually, by building this road here, you're going to be destroying this you know, really important uh, club where we can come together. Um, then you have actors, then you have feminists. So you have all these amazing, this amazing kind of coalition um, of communities coming out uh, and saying, no, actually, this is not the city that, as I experience it, as I want it to be, as it is now, this is being destroyed. Um, so that's what was so remarkable about the 1960s um, and the, kind of the, the rise of neighbor, neighbourhood protests, the rise of civil rights in America, um, the rise of people and communities and individuals coming up and saying, actually, no, this is the kind of city uh, that I want. Um, and of course, that you know, creates a major challenge to the way things, um, the, the way things were done um, and leads to the, in the 1970s, to this astonishing flourishing of... Um, different ways of doing architecture and cities, you know, you know, with Stuart Brand um, and how buildings learn being, being one of them. Um, it's an amazing kind of uh, experimentation that, that took place. Um, I mean, the, the, I suppose the Pyrrhic victory in many ways that I try and explore in Age of Spectacle is that this was great in Covent Garden. Um, this was wonderful, but actually what happened in the end was a, was a gentrification whereby actually a lot of these communities were then priced out of, uh, um, priced out of the neighbourhood completely, a kind of narrative that we've come to expect time and time again when dealing with the, with the city today. What was amazing about it, though, was this, this explosion of different voices saying, actually, the experience of the city counts, the experience of the city as I see it from my community with my identity is this, and this needs to be protected. That kind of diversity, uh, this astonishing cityness, I suppose, um, and beyond, you know, obviously one of the very first people to really explore this in the 1950s in a very similar situation uh, to Covent Garden um, was Jane Jacobs, um, you know, when she was part of the coalition fighting plans for 
um, the destruction of her in part of her neighbourhood in, in Greenwich Village. Um, but and there are many problems with with um, Jane Jacobs looking back from you know twenty twenty one. But one of the you know some of the great things that she did talk about was that kind of the small grainsness of the city, the ability for the city as an idea to be something that all that many different communities can have access to, can occupy the space, can pay for entrance, if you like, um, at a relatively low price. I think one of the challenges now of the of the city, the hyper-gentrified city of somewhere like London, is that the price is too high for most people now to pay. Um, but looking back, that idea of, of people having the freedom to use the city um, in a way that gives them control and power over their environment is still a kind of a goal or maybe it's romantic that I you know, really, really strongly adhere to so that they can express and use the experience of the city. I don't know if you've seen um, The Deuce, the amazing um, series by um, uh, David Simon. Uh, no. It's a wonderful... Oh, you should, Adam, you would love it. So David Simon, um, I think, is one of the most wonderful... Um, uh, chroniclers of the well, the contemporary American city, um, TV uh, producer, writer, and director, um, famously made The Wire about Baltimore yep. um, in the noughties. Anyway, there's a new, a, a relatively new series that came out a couple of years ago called The Deuce, and it's about this stretch um, on 42nd Street in Manhattan. And it starts from in the kind of uh, late 60s, early 70s and, and goes up to the present day and looks and it's, you know, it's a drama series. So it's all about the sex industry. It's about the rise of feminism. Um, it's about and it's about the shift in this amazing city from diversity to and, and excitement and freedom to a kind of sanitized corporate streets that perhaps 42nd Street has um, become now. So really, you must watch it. It's fantastic. A wonderful series. But that is a wonderful spit at the end where the old man, the old protagonist, is in the, twi- is in the you know, 21st century and he's kind of walking down the street and sees kind of the ghosts of the, of the past. And I feel that every time I go to Common Garden now, I go to Common Garden and actually, sadly, some of the um, people that I interviewed have passed away. Brian Anson, the great um, uh, architect turned community activist. Um, John Toomey as well. Uh, they've all sort of passed away and I just, I just feel the ghosts of them. And slightly shudder as I walk past, you know, Dior. Well, it's 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 interesting that, isn't it? That city of many different voices and the cityness of it. You speak of that. I mean, we we did a I did a talk, chat with Amy LeMay a few weeks ago, and uh, and she was talking. About, we were talking a lot about time, and a lot of her projects, you know, night markets that she's pushing for and the prototypes that are going on, first one in, in Wolfhamstow, were about, you know, how can different voices have a different place, more space within the city? And actually, that's not mm. necessarily going to be about splitting up the red lines between, you know, in spatially. It may also be a temporal thing that then we're saying, you know, we'll better understand how we program and plan the city through that lens. And then that gives, you know, better, greater opportunity for more variety, but also more... Uh, people who are I suppose almost a, a sort of enterprise attitude where it's you know might be able to, you know kicking off new ideas can mm. happen within those times rather than those spaces and I wonder what you mm. thought about that yeah no, a great idea I mean that kind of overlaying of you know spatial and temporal um, kind of matrices I think could be very interesting I think the key I think the key lesson 
first, you know, if you want to have, well, let's think about what we think of, a, you know, might be able to find a successful city, but perhaps for, you know, certainly for me, a successful city is one in which um, the residents um, have a degree of control over their circumstances, are, have, are empowered to take control over their circumstances um, in, in whatever form. And that means a certain degree of anarchism, I suppose. I'm very interested in, in anarchism uh, politically, but also in terms of um, how it might refer to, how it might apply to architecture and, and city. That ability for the city to be not a kind of great big lump uh, controlled by people who are distant, but actually much, a much more fine-grained thing which allow people of different communities, people of different um, uh, identities, people of different kinds of power and ability to control their own circumstances and their communities to get access, to get access to the city. There's an amazing, one of the very um, uh, inspirational uh, writers and thinkers on the city that um, a lot of my students are trying to prescribe to my students is Suzanne Hall, um, who is a professor at uh, the London School of Economics. Um, and she's wonderful. She did this amazing study, her PhD, um, a decade or so ago, about the Walworth Road in, um, in South London, um, looking at how, it, or how spatially it, it acts, the high street there acts as a, it's a bit like a kind of, um, almost like a kind of cliff face full of lots of ledges that, that anyone coming into the city can come into the city and find their ledge. And there's something very interesting. She's one of the few people that's both, both a sociologist and, and an architect. So she looks at things, thinks of things very spatially. So she looks at the kind of the shops on Walworth, um, on Walworth Road and looks at how they are colonised and used by different communities. And the spatial nature of it is almost like a kind of honeycomb, if you like. And she analyses the kind of the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the layout of a, of a cafe and looks at how different communities can come in and, and, and occupy um, you know, that little table over there or that little space over there. Or looks at um, you know, a kind of shop front and sees how it can be divided into a, kind of, you know, a phone unlocking um, business there for you know, a migrant who's recently come from Somalia. And it's, it's an amazing, she's an amazing thinker. I, I love that idea of how the city spatially can be this place where multiple communities can come and get access and find their space within it. It's that kind of tension between, you know, that allows freedom and control by, by the, the people using the city. And that's the kind of the romance, the, kind of the, the idea of the city where, you know, people, it's almost kind of hard wired into um, us socially as a place where, you know, the, the kind of the, the person goes to to find their thought fortune. But in order to do that, you have to be able to, to find a ledge. Yeah, I think I find that fascinating. And I think, I mean, it's something we've talked about before. And as you know, I love nesting of activities and the idea that it's the program that leads places. But I remember you telling me about, you know, in some ways, the, it's the capitalist city of the last 200 years that is, you know, has imprinted that upon us. But of course, we go back a few hundred years and the city was much more variegated. There was much more variety. And you'd see, you know, functions within different buildings constantly changing. And, you know, let's say, um, oh, Kit Kats, uh, which our friend, um, 
Ophelia wrote Ophelia, about yeah. the Kit Kat Club, you know, was, was Kit Kat's pub not far from Covent Garden, that acted as a pub, acted as a coffee shop, acted as a place of transaction, and then in the evening was a place to meet, and you'd hang out with Lord Burlington, and he'd not only give <laughs> you the too. money to publish you know, some letters or some drawings, but also Kit Kat had a printing press in the back that he could turn it round within a week. And I mean... Yeah. That's what we're talking about, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, something. Yeah, we can't kind of. Yeah, I mean, being a historian, it's always one always tries to not romanticise the past. You know, when there were you know terrible diseases and smallpox and <laughs> so yes. on. But there are. But I, I'm ignoring it. Go, yeah, I know. But nonetheless, we can go back and, and look at what elements perhaps we might have lost from you know both this city, but also. You know, today from cities, you know, outside uh, the West, there's a lot of really interesting work in academia at the moment, probably the most interesting work, if you like, in academia, looking at, um, you know, the cities of the global south who are going through, you know, such massive changes um, at the moment to, to try and find out, you know, certainly from a, uh, you know, a Western city's perspective, you know, well, actually, what can we learn from Lagos? What can we learn from Johannesburg? What can we learn from Chennai as well? So lots of kind of interesting um, cross uh, cultural dialogue um, going on at the moment, but certainly that idea of the city being, you know, I think I think in the, the Western city we've come, we have come to a certain end, if you like, a certain uh, bookmark in in its development. When you know the capitalist city, if you like, that that you know is the one that you know we inhabit in um, in the West that in many respects Britain sort of invented. Um, is only 200, 250 years old, which historically is pretty, is pretty slim. And it's reached a certain stage, I would say, at the moment, which is that, and it's a certain stage which perhaps, even looking beyond the pandemic, means that there are some significant challenges. One, you know, many challenges, you know, the cost of land, um, the nature of architectural experience, the division um, between you know large metropolitan areas and and the rest of the country, um, I think one of the biggest uh, the gentrification you know uh, as well. I think gentrification, gentrification is such a fascinating. I find a very fascinating topic, um, and I'm interested in in all sorts of ways. One of the one of the interesting ways is I find is is kind of aesthetics as well, um, and how trends happen within cities. Um, and you know, a city's cultural life is dependent on that certain anarchism, that ability for a city to attract all types and different types of people and different cultures to come in to make culture. Um, when that's not able to happen, of course, then you lose the engine, or actually the engine behind gentrification. If you if if different communities can't occupy space in a city, um, can't find their ledge, can't find their um, their little their sort of space in order to live, in order to make a living, in order to make culture, to have a community. You know that I think what we're seeing in a lot of major, I mean in London in particular, um, is the problem of hypergentrification or supergentrification, where actually people can't occupy the space. There's lots of talk about you know ghost cities and people investing in property and not actually living in the space. Well, the the problem with that is that actually the city does ossify. I mean, it, it, it dies. People can't use it if there are too, you know, if too much space is privatised, if communities don't get access or control over these spaces, um, the ability to do what they want, then they will, I mean, they will. And that's, I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the kind of the, the death, um, 
maybe one needs to write a new a new um, death and life of you know great British cities. But you know you're you're seeing that kind of ossification to, you know, take place, um, and the the challenge with that is that well okay well, may, well maybe okay you know cities do rise and fall and their fortunes come and go. Um, you know one 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 point five million people left the city of London you know London rather. Um, in that post-war period, and now, of course, it's up to nine million people have come back in again. So they rise and fall. You wonder whether London is, you know, is which is such an except the exception in this country, is maybe it's transitioning to something else. Maybe a certain ossification and death <laughs> is is necessary for it to to you know find itself again. Maybe activity and excitement is moving elsewhere to other cities. Maybe this will be good in in different ways, but. Personally, I, it makes me feel very sad because, you know, I, my family have lived in London for several um, centuries and we, I love the city, you know. I have a great deal of fondness and affection for the old, you know, coffee houses where Lord Burlington might bump into you and all that kind of stuff. And I think it'd be a terrible shame if, if it got lost. So I think now that, you know, if I was a city leader, if I was, you know, Sadiq Khan, thinking about, you know, what one can do with, with um, the city at the moment, I think the ability of you know, trying to empower people to take occupation of the city again um, would be, you know, high on my agenda, you know, and, and you know, Emil and May talking about nightlife is one of those things, you know, nightlife is one of the things that's, that, that is increasingly disappearing um, from the, and this was happening before the pandemic, you know, it was already, you know, nightclubs and, which I don't frequent at the moment, having small children, but you know what I mean, I did in my, in my heyday, you know, them disappearing from um, relatively central London um, is terrible. Tom, I wanted to ask you about so th this point of transition I find particularly interesting because, I mean, in many ways, what we have seen, well, I think one of the uh, surprising things that's happened because of the pandemic is watching, I suppose, things like 28-day event licenses, meaning that people are stepping forward into the high street like never before. The fact that they're beginning to use facades for small pop-ups like never before. They're kind of taking over parking spaces. So that the you know, interesting things can happen, and not necessarily through the whole week, but just on Thursdays and Fridays. And we're watching almost a sort of prototyping of, it feels like a bit of a festival city at best going on there because people are using, you know, small moving parts, stuff that's light on its feet. Even in our little place where I live here, the Indian restaurant has painted its facade with these great big images. It's got kind of bunting coming out and fairy lights. And then, then the people that are running it are then out there speaking to people on the high street like they never did before. And I think this is quite interesting in terms of that yeah. transitional shift we speak of, that there is something going on that's much more life first. It's sort of Jan Gale yeah on steroids and I wonder well, what yeah, you yeah. thought about that of... are we seeing some clues for Sadiq Khan here do you think well it's a bit of anarchism again it is a bit know, of messiness the, yeah yeah a bit of messiness going, you know, going back to the the A word that ability you know I think I think space uh, you know within the neoliberal or, or you know late capitalist city if you like had become so regimented so controlled um, you know with you know big landowners big landlords saying you can do this you can't do that um that there wasn't that sense of messiness. Um, you know, London had become wall-to-wall, -wall, hyper brands, um, you know, and actually what the pandemic, what's happened with the pandemic, I mean, it was happening anyway with the kind of the, you know, the slight ossification of the city. I mean, the pandemic has kind of accelerated, if you like, because, you know, the, um, it's released an awful lot more uh, space in, in all sorts of different 
um, towns and cities. So, you know, what's fascinating now is, okay, well, let's think about, okay, well, that city that we had before probably isn't going to work. I mean, it wasn't probably working anyway, and it's not probably going to work in the same way for the future. Okay, well, let's try and think about what we can, what we can learn um, and how we can improve it. I think a degree of anarchism is great, the, the ability of, you know, giving power to other communities. And that might be, be time-based, it might be, you know, um, in terms of planning, in terms of the, the legals, in terms of licenses, you know, uh, releasing space for occupation by other groups and other people, freeing up the city um, would be one, would be one, it's almost like a, a, a kind of a, a solution to the, to the kind of hyper regimented space that perhaps, you know, we had got used to um, certainly before the, the pandemic where there was just no one, it's about, it's about providing those ledges, those kind of spaces we can all find a space, you know, find a little position on, giving people and communities the power to be able to define themselves and come together uh, and therefore respect that kind of really ancient idea of the city as a place where people come together. You know, long before the city was a place to, in which one made money out of the space, you know, the kind of the um, landlord's city, which again is only you know, a few hundred years old. It's only an invention of capitalism, and capitalism, as we know it today, is only, you know, really dates from the 17th century. So in terms of historical terms, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of nothing. Before that, the city was something else. And before that, it was something else and something else. So yeah, I, I get the sense that we've come to a certain end of that kind of city, and we're moving to something, to something else. And that ability to give people the freedom to enjoy the city is an ancient idea. You know, it goes back, you know, an awfully long way. And I think, um, you know, adhering to those kind of key ideas, it's almost like the idea of the city, you know, that, that kind of uh, uh, certainly is much, much older than the city we've all come, got used to over the last, you know, few decades, few centuries. Oh, I, I love that. And I think, I mean, that is, is in some ways, if we were to gold plate this conversation and, you know, have that up in lights, I think that idea of the freedom to enjoy the city, the, the importance of a little anarchy there, the importance of a little, those sort of powerful ledges throughout this, which is critically a thing about programming and permission and licensing and governance and all those elements that are above and beyond buildings. It is those mm. enabling factors. And I think aligning everybody in terms of, you know, I, I remember a great uh, sort of uh, event producer we once worked with used to talk about dollars per clap. And what I really like about that is the idea that you're constantly on, constantly drawing people in and constantly caring about the fringes because that's where innovation, that's where the most lively debate will come from. And that is that city of, well, of togetherness, isn't it? It's the city yeah. of conversation. Yeah. yeah, what what enables what enables people to feel comfortable? It's giving them control over their circumstances. I mean, so there's a there's a political message here as well. You know, if you want people, if you want all this stuff that we now all talk about freely, you know, well being and and so on. If you want diversity, if you want people to speak their mind, to be free to speak their mind, you need to give them power and control over their circumstances. The ability to feel safe, the ability to feel um, supported. Um, you need a you need community. You need networks. You need networks of support. And if you can give people spatially a sense of identity and a sense of control over their circumstances, instead of taking away control, um, instead of, you know, um, kind of militarizing their space and controlling their lives, um, then you're going to, in the long run, 
have you know, happier citizens, more contented citizens, more empowered citizens, and a better city. A city in which we're able to um, have control over our lives and control over um, our cultures and the, the kind of cultures that we want to produce. And in the end, that will produce, you know, a more diverse and more exciting city. Mm. Yes, I, no, I, I think you're quite right. And I think, you know, it's, it is that last point, I suppose, in terms of that control over the city as a more lively more dynamic entities. I think particularly I think about your work with your students and think about, you know, the, the things that they must be talking about now and how that we can better kind of out that debate too, that that isn't yeah, a thing that yeah. happens behind closed doors, that there's a thing of civic engagement and it's getting out from the classroom and into the street and enjoying that debate together and ideally no. prototyping it together, I reckon. No, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's great um, working with students because not being a real cliche, uh, no, I learn as much as they learn. You know, it's great to be able to talk to uh, early 20-somethings who are generationally very different from me. Um, and, you know, one of the key things in this real transitional period we're all going through culturally is that generational shift. And actually, you know, the generation that are now um, at university um, are very different from, from you and me. They're, they are, from the, the get-go, much more politically engaged. They're much more connected to issues such as the climate emergency and so on, which is fantastic. You know, this is all stuff that got me going when I was when I was younger too, um, but we didn't hadn't really kind of risen to the fore. Now that you know, almost to a person, they're they're completely interested. Okay, well, okay, th- this city that we talked about, you know, this city, um, this late capitalist city. Well, actually, I've got no, this. This is them. I'm, I'm I'm voicing there. Uh, this is I have no part in this. This is nothing to do with me. It's you know, to, to destroying the environment. Um, I can't get. I can't afford any rent and bloody blah, blah, blah. So we need to rethink this city, and that's what I'm hearing again and again and again from these uh, wonderful twenty somethings um, who are. You know, politically radical and uh, wonderful, and and creatively radical too. So, um, you know, it's in their in their hands. You know, they will be they'll be creating this amazing city of the future. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, me too. Well, Tom, thank you. Energizing as ever. I greatly look forward to seeing you face to face very soon. Maybe in some sort of uh, 18th century coffee shop, or maybe Let's at some it. student debate. That would be a joy. <laughs> thank you, Tom. Oh, thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tom. So next up, the light artist Chris Levine, who is best known for his holographic artworks, most famously of the Queen and Grace Jones, and for his large immersive laser and LED installations. He talks about using light and sound to create deeply sensory experiences that are both uplifting and purifying. And specifically, we discuss his new show at Houghton Hall in Norfolk, which includes a monumental spherical structure called Molecule of Light, which comes to life as darkness falls across this historic English landscape garden. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.